Welcome to the Congress of Neurological Surgeons Journal Club. Today we will be discussing the paper Functional Outcomes and Delayed Cerebral Ischemia Following Non-Perimesencephalic Angiogram-Negative Subarachnoid Hemorrhages Similar to Aneurysmal Subarachnoid Hemorrhages. I have Dr. Almafti, the primary author, and Dr. Chenkowitz here. Hi, this is uh, Fawaz Almafti. I'm uh, an assistant professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and uh, radiology at Rutgers University, Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Hello, I'm Brian Jankowitz from the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Dasani. Hello, this is uh, Rimmel Dasani, uh, CNS resident fellow from Shreveport, Louisiana. And this is Kumar Vasudevan. I'm also a CNS uh, resident leadership fellow from Emory University. Great. We were going to go ahead with a summary of the paper. Thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, honored to discuss this paper with you guys for uh, the CNS Journal Club. So basically, what we sought out to do was try to better understand angiogram-negative subarachnoid hemorrhage. And we've all taken care of these patients. Um, what triggered this paper for me was having taken care of many of these patients, but some of these patients who had negative angiograms didn't really behave the way like most paramesencephalic uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage patients behave. They actually did develop a vasospasm and did proceed to develop a poor clinical outcome. Basically, what we sought out to do was look at the subgroup of patients who had non-paramesencephalic subarachnoid hemorrhage. That was also obviously angiogram negative. Basically, we looked at patients who had blood in the lateral sylvian fissure, supracellar cistern, and interhemispheric fissure. And these were patients who were designated as having um, non-paramesencephalic angiogram-negative subarachnoid hemorrhage. What we did was we retrospectively analyzed or interrogated our a prospectively maintained database of uh, almost uh, 1,300 patients uh, accrued between 2006 and 2014. All patients included in the study who had non-paramesencephalic angiogram-negative subarachnoid hemorrhage had two consecutive negative cerebral angiogram. We identified a total of 191 patients out of the uh, 1,300 patients with uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage who, were, who had two negative angiograms. Of these, around 83, per, uh, 83 patients, 4.9%, were adjudicated to, have, uh, to having non-paramesencephalic angiogram-negative subarachnoid hemorrhage. Basically, what we did was uh, we compared the two groups of patients, the non-paramesencephalic angiogram-negative uh, non patients to all the rest of the subarachnoid hemorrhage patients, and we found that these patients were more likely to be men and had a higher rate of uh, uh, diabetes insipidus. Non-paramesencephalic uh, angiogram-negative subarachnoid hemorrhage patients were less likely to develop vasospasm, and this was found in the univariate analysis and also subsequently in the multivariate analysis after we controlled for known predictors of poor outcome. One interesting thing we found in the multivariate analysis was that there was no statistically significant difference between the two groups as far as developing hydrocephalus, seizures, and also delayed cerebral ischemia. One other thing that we looked at, which we thought was extremely interesting, was that they were equally associated, both groups, the non-permanent angiogram-negative subarachnoid hemorrhage, as well as the aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, were both equally associated with developing poor functional outcome, defined as a modified ranking score uh, uh, equal or more than three. And as well, and also death compared to the aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Brian Jankovic. Would you like to lead with the first question? Sure. First of all, I'd like to congratulate Fawaz for for taking a deep dive into thoroughly looking at the different stratifications of subarachnoid hemorrhage. I think there's still a common misconception that all non-aneurysmal subarachs are the same, and, and they're often considered 
as one cohort. I'm not surprised that you were able to find a surprising result when looking at a distinct subset of non-aneurysmal subrex, that being by completely eliminating all the paramesencephalic hemorrhages. However, there's something that, that fundamentally makes me uncomfortable about this evaluation, and that is it flies in the face of what I see in clinical practice. I think that although clearly the non-aneurysmal, non-paramesencephalic subarachnoid hemorrhages probably do worse than the, than the paramesencephalic hemorrhages, Overall, these patients anecdotally do very well, at least at the University of Pittsburgh. And I worry that sometimes complex statistical analysis can, can either create or, or stop uh, a significance from rising to the surface. And so I guess my, my first question would be, one, use a, you use a lot of variables in your multivariable analysis, and typically we say we like to have at least 10 patients per variable evaluated. Was your paper predetermined or powered for a multivariable analysis? And two, when you look at the univariate analysis, things like seizures, rebleeding, DCI, intracranial hemorrhage, vasospasm, all of which are statistically significant higher in the, in the uh, aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage population, how, how does it make sense that the aneurysmal subarachs don't do worse. It just, once again, it flies in the face of what we see in clinical practice. So those are the two questions I'd pose to you. Uh, thank you very much. I think that these are fantastic questions. First of all, to answer your first question as uh, related to why these patients do poorly despite having higher incidence of hydrocephalus and seizures and lower, potentially an even lower incidence of vasospasm. Basically, we were looking at, did these patients develop delayed cerebral ischemia? And the answer was yes. What, whether or not um, vasospasm is directly related to uh, the development of, vasos, uh, of uh, delayed cerebral ischemia has been called in, into question recently. Like, uh, like as I'm sure many of our listeners are aware, despite the prevalence, uh, prevalence of radiographic vasospasm in aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage being in up to up to 70% of patients, DCI only occurs in 30% of patients, and a number of hypotheses may underlie this dissociation. Um, like primarily vasospasm is associated but not causally related to DCI. Basically, if we see patients who have delayed infarctions, like in patients who don't actually have uh, proximal vasospasm. Also, pharmacologic agents that reduce the rates of moderate to severe vasospasm have not been shown to improve outcomes or decrease the incidence of uh, development of delayed cerebral ischemia. Like, we went into the study not expecting this result at all. We were thinking, all right, so, um, like we know that paramesencephalic uh, hemorrhages, for the most part, these patients don't do as bad. But what triggered me to actually look at this was, I just happened to have like a few patients who, some of whom had uh, vasospasm, others who did not, yet they became symptomatic and they required interventions. Basically, this just brought me back to the CONSCIOUS-3 trials where some of these patients were, uh, where we gave clazacentan, for example, uh, which is an endophilin receptor blocker, and although we decreased the incidence of vasospasm, this didn't change the fact that these patients still went on to develop delayed cerebral ischemia. So as far as th th that's concerned, I'm not entirely sure that there has to be a direct co correlation between the development of vasospasm and uh, uh, the, the development of, uh, and, and, the, and as a consequence, development of DCI. Your other question was uh, related to um, did we uh, were we uh, powered to, sh to demonstrate a difference? So we the, the database includes almost 1,300 patients. To the best of my knowledge, this is probably one of the largest studies looking at this subset of patients. One of the reasons I also embarked on this paper is when I went back and looked at the to review the literature, 
the vast majority of all papers actually included patients who had uh, the vast majority of literature on angiogram negative subarachnoid hemorrhage had patients who had paramesencephalic subarachnoid hemorrhage and did not really dichotomize non-paramesencephalic from paramesencephalic which I felt may dilute the, the results. And this is pro primarily the reason why we actually went, went ahead and did the, uh, did the study. As far as the multivariate uh, analysis is concerned, um, and we controlled for um, basically, like in a univariate analysis, you look at all possible associated factors. And then in the multivariate analysis, multivariate logistic regression analysis, what you're trying to do or what we were trying to do is trying to control for known predictors of poor outcome or known predictors of vasospasm. So once we control or once we neutralize these parameters, then you see, is there, was this truly an association of the, like a, 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 a correlation between the disease process and uh, this outcome, or was this uh, confounded by the presence of thick blood or interventricular blood, or was this because this patient already came in and had a poor exam? And when we controlled for these factors, we still found that there was a higher incidence of a higher association with DCI and a higher association with uh, with uh, poor functional outcome, and no difference between between the two subgroups as far as poor functional outcome and, and even death. So one thing that seems to be missing from the data set is the raw data on outcome. And I'm wondering if you if you did a univariate analysis on differences in outcome, whether it was just good outcome in a dichotomized fashion, good outcome versus bad outcome, or number of MRS1s between the two groups. Because I do wonder if there is a, a bimodal distribution in the non-aneurysmal subracts that may be skewing the outcomes on a multivariable analysis. I'm really glad you you, you asked that question because basically what we did was, um, and, and actually, I, I know we spoke about this earlier, I actually went back uh, since we last spoke. I went back and I looked at our data. Um, I don't have the raw data as far as each MR, like each disease process and the individual number of patients who had an MRS one, two, three, four, five, or six. But what, what I do have is a dichotomized scale. I have uh, two dichotomized scales. One looking at MRS zero to two versus. Uh, three, four, and five, and the other uh, dichotomizing uh, zero to three and uh, four and five, and on the other on the on the poor functional outcome scale. And in both cases, there was no difference. One thing that was excluded was death. Um, so if you if you had a, a modified ranking of six, we did, I do have that individually, and there was no difference between the two, the two groups. Like the p value was 0.745. Okay. And then my final question, which I ask myself every time I see one of these patients, is what do you think the underlying pathophysiology is? behind non-paramesencephalic, non-aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage? And do you think it is a widely disparate group, or do you think that there's one underlying pathology that, that links all of these patients together? Yeah, no, I think it's a, um, I, I don't think it's one, there is one unifying diagnosis. I think this is a uh, rather heterogeneous uh, group of patients. I don't have an answer for that. I have theories, um, and actually multiple theories have been proposed to explain the etiology of non-paramesencephalic angiogram negative subarachnoid. These include the presence of an underlying ruptured aneurysm that is not visualized angiographically, secondary to thrombosis or like localized vasospasm. I'm not sure I believe that because for the most part, if there is thrombosis um, like on the repeat angiograms, many of these like these um, partially thrombosed aneurysms, especially if they're very small, there, there is a chance that you may be able to see something real, like see some of these like surrogate markers of the presence of an, angiogram, uh, of an aneurysm. Other theories include uh, the presence of arterial leakage from perforating arteries into the 
brain substance during the subarachnoid uh, course, uh, the course through the subarachnoid space. Another theory is like an intrinsic disease process to the vessel wall, whether it's uh, vasculitis or possibly even it, like subtle um, um, intracranial dissection. Other theories, uh, like uh, other other people have actually blamed uh, like a venous etiology, uh, like a venous uh, venous occlusion or venous outflow occlusion causing this uh, rupture, uh, this hemorrhage in the subarachnoid space. One of the things that was going through my mind as I was going through analyzing these individual patients was, was there like some underlying uh, illicit drug use? Were there an excessive number of patients who were uh, taking cocaine or, uh, or, or other sympathomimetic drugs? So, because these have also been implicated as uh, potential causes of subarachnoid hemorrhages. And finally, um, the presence of bleeding disorders secondary to the use of antiplatelets and anti uh, anticoagulants uh, like Coumadin or some of the NOACs, whether these, this just causes some spontaneous uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage. All right, with that, how about we, we hand off the question to one of the fellows on the phone? Yes, it's, uh, it's uh, Remo from, uh, Remo Dosani from uh, LSU uh, Shreveport, one of the CNS uh, leadership fellows. I'd like to uh, ask a, a question. Uh, angiogram uh, negative uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage was defined in your uh, paper as two negative angiograms spaced uh, one week apart in patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, some neurosurgeons would um, argue that in non-pyramids encephalic aneurysm negative subarachnoid hemorrhage, the initial angiograms might be negative because the aneurysm is small, uh, partially thrombosed, and may be obscured by surrounding blood. Uh, therefore, some may recommend performing a delayed angiogram three to six months after the initial bleed to assess for potential vascular abnormality once the blood has been cleared from the subarachnoid space. Uh, in your practice, Dr. Almuthi, have you uh, performed delayed angiogram uh, on uh, patients with non-paramesencephalic aneurysm negative subarachnoid hemorrhage? Absolutely. That's a terrific question. So basically, all patients who come in with um, paramesencephalic, so, so I think it's important to uh, differentiate paramesencephalic hemorrhages, so subarachnoid hemorrhages from non-paramesencephalic hemorrhages. The non-paramesencephalic hemorrhages, unfortunately, I did not include pictures in uh, like uh, like uh, uh, graphics in my in my like uh, a lot of graphics in my paper. But basically, these are patients who have a subarachnoid hemorrhage pattern that looks almost like exactly like what you would see in a patient who had an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. In these in this subgroup of patients, in my practice, I typically do uh, two angiograms, and if they're asymptomatic and they're looking okay, at two weeks they're they're downgraded and they're they're sent on their way um, through rehab or whatever they need to get done. But for the most part, as far as long-term uh, follow-up, I typically get uh, do a three-month diagnostic cerebral angiogram, and I do a year uh, diagnostic cerebral angiogram. I'll, I'll second that as well. I, I tend to do two angiograms while in-house, one on a presentation, one exactly. at seven days, and then a repeat angiogram, typically six to 12 weeks down the road. Exactly, yes. And, and what are the findings uh, in uh, patients with non-perimesencephalic angiogram negative who may have been angiogram negative in the first two uh, angiograms spaced one week apart, yeah. let's say you do another angiogram three months later, are you diagnosing uh, vascular anomalies uh, that had not been previously diagnosed in the first two angiograms? So of, the, of all the patients included in the study, we had one patient who actually on repeat angiogram did end up having, uh, a, a, like a, a, we did find a, a vascular uh, anomaly. It was basically a small blister aneurysm that was angiographically occult for actually 
it was angiographically occult for the first three angiograms. This was a repeat angiogram at 12 months. And what convinced me that this was the underlying uh, culprit was because this was exactly where the hemorrhage occurred. And this was a year out. Thank you. No Thank you very much um, for this discussion. It's good and informative. Dr. Vadusevan, do you have a question? I do. Thank you. This is uh, Kumar Vasudevan from, from Emory. One of the, I think, sometimes frustrating things about um, discussing the critical care and, and uh, post-hemorrhage uh, management of these patients is that there are a lot of different variables in terms of how people like to treat preventatively, proactively uh, for delayed cerebral ischemia and, of course, all of the other things in a subarachnoid hemorrhage patient that could potentially affect their outcome. I think that one thing that I've noticed at our institution is that many of these patients in this population, the non-perimensophallic um, angiogram-negative subarachnoid hemorrhage patients are sometimes treated differently. For instance, if they do develop radiographic spasm, some folks who manage them are reluctant to, uh, as you all did in this paper, um, systematically drive their, their systolic blood pressure up for fear of there must be something angiographically occult underneath there, you know, assuming, for instance, there's a occult aneurysm underneath there that is at risk of rupturing. Or they might be more likely to take them back for repeat angiography sooner in the event of vasospasm or something else, just because we don't understand a lot about this population of patients. So do you see behaviors like that uh, commonly in, in, you know, this sort of patients that were included in the study, do you think it could have any effect on the changes or the lack of difference in outcome that we're seeing here? So what I can tell you is if the initial angiogram is negative, I'm treating this patient the exact same way I would treat a patient who had an aneurysm that was secured. Because if, it's, if the lesion is so small that I cannot visualize it, odds are an elevation in the blood pressure will not really translate necessarily directly to like rebleeding, you know, like in the, in this sub in this uh, subgroup of patients. For the most part, you're like I, I like to think along the terms uh, along the lines of mean arterial pressure. And mean arterial pressure, like unless the mean arterial pressure is like significantly elevated, odds are I don't like I'm not sure if there is like up until now any paper that actually confirmed that the, an elevation in systolic blood pressure will directly cause Rebleeding. For the most part, we're never needing to like press these patients like in the first 24 hours or even the first 72 hours. For the most part, if we are to press these patients, it's much later in the course. And for the most part, most of these patients, they when they do become symptomatic, you're right. We do like we may be more likely to bring the patient down for a repeat angiogram, not necessarily at seven days. Uh, like I know the manuscript says uh, within uh, like two separate angiograms. But we don't, uh, like I did not exactly specify the, the duration. For the most part, uh, most of these angiograms were divided within five days, like we're five days apart, five to seven days apart. And this is typically what we do. And I think this is very much in, in line with what most institutions do. And to answer your question, does that affect our, the critical care management of these patients? Not entirely sure. I, I don't believe so. Well, like I said, I am treating, like in my practice, I treat these patients as though they don't have an underlying vascular malformation or an underlying vascular lesion, and I treat them as, the, as, as if they are secured. Thank you. And just a quick follow-up uh, clarification on something in the paper. Um, you had mentioned uh, in the methods here that um, the imaging that they received was in the form of angiography or CTA, um, and I didn't see a specification as to how many patients received one or the other. 
just thinking about the, the ability of CTA versus conventional angiography to diagnose a very small aneurysm or other malformation, um, is that something that you think played a role here? All of our patients, uh, they all underwent a diagnostic cerebral angiogram. Some may have gotten a CTA in addition to an angiogram, but for the most part, 100% of all the patients underwent two diagnostic cerebral angiograms. Thank you. Dr. Jankowicz, is that uh, true in your institution? Is that your practice too, or do you substitute one of the angiograms uh, with a CT angio? No, I, I believe very uh, strongly in catheter-based angiography to evaluate any patient with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And while we do have a protocol where when patients arrive to the ER, uh, typically after hours, they get a non-con CT. If they have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, then they get a CTA. Mainly, God forbid, they have to go to the burning room in the middle of the night. But then they always get a, a catheter-based angiogram and within 24 hours, once again, repeated at seven days. And then I, I do a follow-up uh, catheter-based angiogram. I, I don't believe this is a disease process where non-invasive imaging can be a substitution. However, if that is negative, I, I do think that it, down the road, it is going to be things like three Tesla MR that is probably going to help deduce what the actual etiology is or pathophysiology for all these patients, whether that is an occult partially thrombosed aneurysm or distal mycotic aneurysm or uh, some underlying hemorrhagic conversion of a stroke. I think that advanced imaging is really going to help, help figure out what this disparate population is all about. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think there's a uh... Uh, great advances in vessel wall imaging uh, currently, and patients who were like who have essentially normal angiograms or even normal uh, like MRIs can like on this uh, like on an uh, contrast like an MRA with contrast using special uh, spe specific protocols that look at like that image the vessel wall. Some of these cases are actually um, showing up as vasculitis and or some sort of vasculopathy that was previously unidentified. One final question, Dr. Almufti. What is your take home message for our listeners? What I'd like to take away from the paper is basically what I learned from the paper from, from this study is, although the risk of vasospasm may be lower in the patients with non-permanent cephalic angiogram negative subarachnoid hemorrhage, they're equally associated with the likelihood of developing delayed cerebral ischemia poor outcome, and even death. I wouldn't brush these patients off. I would treat them like, like pay very special attention to these patients because these are not the patients that I'm going to be comfortable downgrading from my neuro-ICU. Um, these are not the patients that I'm going to say, oh, no, this is an angiogram, this is an angiogram negative subarachnoid hemorrhage. Don't worry about them when I'm giving sign out from like one resident to another. These patients, although they have a lower likelihood of developing, Vasospasm, there is a real likelihood, a chance that these patients can develop a DCI and they can be very sick patients. <clears throat> thank you very much. I want to thank our faculty, Dr. Almufti, Dr. Brian Chenkowitz, Dr. Dosani, and Dr. Vadusevan. This was a very good discussion and summary of the paper. I also want to thank our listeners. This concludes the Congress of Neurological Surgeons podcast.